How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In context. recent weeks, uh, you may or may not have been following this, not that you need to or should, but uh, inerrancy has become a big discussion point. Uh, where I used to serve at Moody, at the Moody Bible Institute in uh, recent months, they've been through some hard changes, and one of the big issues surrounded inerrancy, and is the uh, institution staying to a position on biblical inerrancy? You may not have even heard those terms, but it's the idea, this is the authoritative word of God. He has spoken, it's reliable, it's trustworthy, we can count on it, we can believe it, even when we don't understand it all, we can trust in it. And of course, if you believe that, you're a very small uh, number of the population. Because we continue to reinterpret, uh, finesse it, tweak it a little bit. Uh, I don't know if you follow Breakpoint, but John Stone Street and uh, Eric Metaxas and Bill Brown is part of this organization. The, the Colson Center has sort of split up in different areas of ministry. But um, I would encourage you to, I don't encourage people to subscribe because you get so much stuff in your inbox. But Breakpoint is a, is a simple, you can click and read it or not. But uh, John did a piece on the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which I found a little comical and very appropriate that he chose to post it at this time because Chicago is where this began. And then my mind goes, can anything good come out of Chicago? <laughs> uh, 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 anyway, but yes, this was a great statement. 40 years ago, this statement was crafted. And many of the preachers who signed this statement are household names today. I won't read the entire article, obviously, but he goes on to, to discuss in that time, in that context, in the 70s, listen to just this one sentence. Language out of inerrancy debate uh, moved to mainline churches whether they believed in the Bible or not. And he writes, phrases such as Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship, entered the lexicon, the words we appeal to the lexicon, and became an excuse to radically privatize our faith, to reject historical teaching and embrace new ways of reading and interpreting the Bible. And that's exactly why they wrote the statement. In the mid-70s, they did a survey of Southern Baptist students, nothing against them, but after seminary, they were less likely to agree with the statement, Jesus is the divine son of God, and I have no doubts about that. Seminaries always shift to the left. The seminary that I attend and I love, and I, 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 you know, I pray it never does, it will. One day it will go liberal. They all do, Andover. If you've heard me teach before, Andover, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, they all go eventually to the left, and that's why new ones begin. Because somebody as crazy as uh, L.H. Hardwood, wait a minute, we're going to teach the Bible. We're going to teach the Bible. 
And it's become a novel thing, and yet it's not new. And the passage we're looking at today is a, I don't want to overstate it, but it's probably one of the more important verses you'll ever read on why we believe, I mean, there's lots of verses we can read to support this, why this is the Word of God. So if you have your Bible, God bless you. I won't shame you this morning if you brought a cheater's version. Uh, but we have the text on screen, and I would like for us to read this aloud together. It is the Word of God. Let's read it well together. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Let's get the context of chapter, uh, the, chapter 1 of Second Peter. In verses 16 to 18, Peter has been laying an argument down that they saw something and they heard something. And the illustration he used was the transfiguration. They witnessed Moses and Elijah and Jesus being transfigured before them. We talked about this last week. This was new to me, and I, I'm not going to say it's bulldogmatic, but uh, maybe it was Mount Sinai. And the more I've thought about it and read about it, it makes more and more sense because the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The law and the prophets, so you got Moses and you got the great prophet Elijah, you need prophet, priest, and what? King. And Jesus Christ then is transfigured before them. So they saw Jesus, they heard Jesus, they saw miracles, they saw him teach as he went through. But that transfiguration was a seminal occurrence. And Peter's saying in this bigger argument, when, when that occurred, we saw, we heard, it was cemented what these prophets were teaching. Now, in verses 19 and 21, he continues the argument saying, let me clarify this a little bit more just in case you're not putting the pieces together. This is the word of God. It's the prophecy of God. It's true. We saw it in the transfiguration, and we're going to see it in the way Peter writes. It's a very simple passage. What we're going to look at is that the Bible's reliable, the Bible is practical, and the Bible is God's very word. Scripture is reliable, it is practical, and it is the very word of God. Let's just look at those three points. That's all we want to do today. First of all, God's word is reliable. Notice Peter says the prophetic word. That idiom or expression would mean to the hearer the Old Testament. That would be sort of what we talk about Old and New Testament. When they heard that phrase, the prophetic word referred to the Old Testament. Now, if you read this at first blush, made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention to, it sounds like it's a qualifier. Like Peter's saying, if you didn't believe it, this will help you even more. That's not what Peter is saying. It's not as though we needed more proof. What Peter is explaining to them is what we saw, what we heard, the transfiguration, this Old Testament document, it's reliable. It's reliable in the nature of how it was organized. It's reliable in those who contributed to it. It's reliable for many reasons. Please note also a little bit of grammar this morning. We have. So we have the prophetic word. 
There are two lines of thinking on this. Some believe that he's talking about as an apostle, we own this and we're teaching you. And the other is, no, no, we as corporate believers. And I lean on that part because as the verse continues, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention to. This first person plural is that you and I have this book. Please do not underestimate the power you have holding this book in your hand. It is reliable. Um, Cindy and I were talking this morning. I posted something on social media. I get all sorts of feeds about articles of interest. And this one is about screen time. And we're learning more and more about neurosynaptic and neuroplasticity and what screens do to us versus what texts do to us and how it's affecting the brain. And this one uh, article that I, I just posted on social media said that screens are now more addicted than crack cocaine. That's a little bit of an overstatement, but what they're saying is we're turning here for everything. And it's not just information, it's entertainment. It goes to the pleasure center of the brain. There's something about a text. I'm not anti, I love technology. If you, if you saw my house, you would know it. But I'm not anti-technology. But there's something about this keeps me from being distracted. Because once I open the Bible software, I'm done. If I stay with the book, I'm okay. A pen, you, know, you can buy these things still. They're called pens. And you can write on paper. They still sell paper. You can buy a cool journal. You can start writing things down. And I think there's a lot being lost in this neurosynaptic, neuroplasticity, the fact that we're not right. You've got a Bible. And Peter, interestingly, is saying the prophetic word what was spoken, what was captured, what we believe in the Old Testament prophets, that is a sure thing, and you have it. I love technology. Don't hear me wrong. I don't think it's a sin to use it. Bordering. No, I, I, I just think, I think we have so overcompensated with the ease with which we study. We're losing a lot in the tactile world that we can't reclaim with technology. But I certainly could be proven wrong. You have it. Peter is looking at this through an Old Testament lens. Listen to what Calvin wrote. The authority of the Word of God is the same as it was in the beginning. And then it was given further confirmation then than before the advent of Christ. Meaning that when the prophets spoke, it was truth. They believed, they understood it. This is before Christ comes on the scene as Messiah born of a virgin. Well, the Bible you hold is reliable. The Bible is a light in the darkness. Now, when you go to Israel, because after all, it is God's will for you to go to Israel, uh, we'll take you to a site and you will see this so-called pilot stone. Now, this image of the pilot stone is the one that's actually in the museum in Jerusalem, uh, but they have a, a, a facsimile, a replica at Caesarea Martima. There's two Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi in the north and Caesarea Martima, which is on the Mediterranean Sea. And we'll take you there and we'll show you this, this uh, facsimile of it. And um, if you go to the Caesarea Martima on, on the Mediterranean, there's an auditorium that's going to see probably, I don't know, in the neighborhood of maybe 15,000 people. And in the first century in antiquity, there was no lumber really, it was stone. And so when something was knocked over, you reclaimed stone and repurposed it for your house. Now we're so cool because we reclaim lumber. Well, in antiquity, you had to reuse everything. 
So they reclaimed stone. On one of these pieces, they turned it over and they found this inscription. Now it's in Latin, but it's translated to the divine Augustus, this Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea, this has been dedicated to, or something to that effect. It's, it's a broken fragment, we can't get the whole inscription off it. But the importance of this thing being found in this area was Pilate was a real historical figure. He lived there. He was the prefect, and it's dated at the time Christ would have been on the planet. So we find something like this, and we get all excited. And Christians, this is 1961, by the way. And we say, see, it proves the Bible's true. That kind of makes sense. You find a relic, it agrees with the Bible, ergo the Bible must be true. It's a, it's a logic flaw. It's backwards. It's not doesn't help the Bible because I dig something up and I have an image of a Herod on it and it proves the Bible. It's just the opposite. The Word of God came before these relics were made. So the Word of God. So to me, it's just like icing on the cake, and you shouldn't eat the icing after all, right? You scrape it off. So to, to me, archaeology doesn't prove the Bible. The Bible proves archaeology, and. Just as a footnote, they've yet to find anything archaeologically that disproves anything, which to me is more interesting than they find something that the Bible has already stressed. All that is for free. God's word is reliable. Secondly, God's word is practical. Peter says you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp. Peter is approving, encouraging his readers. Pay attention. Some of you have been around a friend of mine, Kurt Thompson, who says pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Love that phrase. Pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Because we're all we're all somewhat squirrel, right? I mean, at some level, squirrel. I was interviewed uh, in my home office the other day by someone for their podcast. They were low on looking for help. And uh, and, and moved and, and my office is just it's four walls and, and nothing to look at. And um, I, I pointed out, I said, You see my computer monitor faces a wall, not a window. Because I was squirrel before squirrel was cool. I mean, I was always the kid doing this. You know, I was, you know, ADHD, ODD, all those things combined. You know, had I been alive today as a boy, they'd probably have me wrapped up in saran wrap somewhere in a place, you know. Um, pay attention to what you're paying attention to. How many times do I tell myself this through the day? Michael, get back on task. Michael, get back on task. Michael, get back on task. Pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Nothing new. The Apostle Peter said, you do well to pay attention to this. Now, the lamp is uh, a very simple metaphor. Um, maybe they were drifting away from the word. Maybe the audience, he, we don't know. Maybe the audience he was writing was just apathetic toward the Bible, let's call it. Maybe they were being influenced by false teaching. If you've been around me at all, you know my little phrase, don't let the world teach you theology, because the world's constantly trying to change our theological framework. And not to be indelicate, the Christian church is losing its corporate mind. It's becoming a business. It's becoming all kinds of important good things, but it's not paying attention to this lamp. When you uh, teach a teenager to drive, how many of us have successfully taught a teenager to drive? Yeah, you're still here. You're still here. How many of you are looking forward to teaching your teenager to drive? How many of you are terrified to teach your teenager? I've got a lot more hands there. So, it, 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 you know, how do you do it? You start in a, a parking lot, 
on a you know early morning Sunday or something where you start. Some, someone's got a farm or some land, you start out there. You start somewhere where they can't hurt anybody and you're sitting right on top of them, right? And then eventually you go into a residential neighborhood where there's very little traffic where it's safe to let your son or daughter be behind the wheel. And it's such a joy to teach your children to drive. They're so obedient and compliant. There's no distractions. They, they, I mean, it's the easiest thing in the world to teach your kid. To, you think teach them to ride a bike is a challenge. Teach them to drive a car, for goodness sakes. And then as they get more and more proficient, and they know everything, of course, then we go out into traffic. Now, driving a car on a farm or on back roads or anywhere is easy peasy, Right? Driving a car with hundreds of cars around you that are manned by people that shouldn't have licenses in many cases, that don't know what a turn signal is, that don't know what a speed limit is or is not, that don't come to a complete stop, and you're thrown into a cauldron of disaster. Um, Our first daughter had three accidents in her first year. None were her fault, her defense. Our second daughter, sorry, i got to call you out. You're here, Jesse. I think it was 11 days, uh, totaled a friend's car, and fortunately her truck was, was saved. Uh, because why? I mean, you're young. You're learning something. The moment you hand those, that set of keys to your little precious son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter, you have taken the rails away, haven't you? They're on their own. This is practical. If you come to a complete stop, if you look both ways, if you wait, if you use your turn signal, if you look in your mirrors every 30 seconds or so, if you pay attention to what you're paying attention to as you drive, you will probably not have an accident. If you pull out that thing in your pocket and you're checking your social media or ways or whatever else you're doing, you are more likely to have an accident. I still marvel at now, I'm not trying to be sexist, but I see women on 65 that are putting mascara on as they're driving down a highway at 70 miles an hour. N- number one, they must be very gifted to do that. And number two, I'd kind of hate to see what they really do look like if they did it on the highway, but nevertheless, um, pay attention to what you're doing. There was a study done years ago and found out that blue-collar workers were better drivers than people that had advanced education. The study went on to suggest that people are they're distracted thinking about other things. This is where a person who goes to work and isn't stressed about showing up and doing his or her job and going home is more likely to be paying attention to the road. I don't know if that's true or not. It kind of makes sense. Because I'm distracted. Peter says, pay attention to a lamp. It's a lamp. It's an image that everyone in the first century, it was, it, it's an image that transfers today. You walk into a room, you turn the light on without thinking. If you have a garage door opener and the bulb's out, you change it. If you open the refrigerator and the light doesn't come on, you go, the light's out. And you go find an appliance bulb for $18 and put it in there. Right? We, we don't even pay attention to this stuff until it doesn't work. A lot of us have automatic lights in our environment, and they go on and off at certain time intervals. But don't we get upset? Well, it's not working. It's not working. And we hit like hitting it's going to help, you know. Um, the word in the New Testament didn't simply mean dark and light. It took on the meaning of dry, parched, murky, or dirty. Do you like going into a fancy restaurant and they dim the lights while you're there? You like it? You like I don't like it for two reasons. I can't see the menu anymore, and they're turning it down because they don't want me to see the roaches. 
That's my philosophy. No lights, you don't see the little critters eating the crumbs in the corner, right? Been there, done that, haven't we all? Scripture and light are common. John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night or darkness. We often used to joke, you don't typically go out and commit crimes in broad daylight. You do it with a hoodie, all dressed up in black at night because you're trying to hide something. Sin is the same. We hide our sin. We shelter. We don't do our sin in full uh, view of everyone, right? 1 John 2, 8. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true of him, in, which is true in him and in you, because of the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Well, God's word is reliable. God's word practically in third, practical in third. God's word is indeed from God. Now that sounds like such a dumb statement, but I think we need to hear it. God's word is indeed from God. Look again at verse 20. We know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter's connecting these two phrases. You do well to pay attention to this, but know this. He's sewing these ideas together. In other words, keep this in mind when you read the Bible. Note there's a negative statement here. Actually, there's two of them. Scripture is not a matter of man's interpretation. This is a mere mortal statement. We didn't make this up. We think back on Scripture in a lot of ways, and we, we can talk about gifts of prophecy and gifts of knowledge, and certainly within the Christian community there's different opinions on this. I want to talk just about the Scripture, the book that you're holding and reading and, and looking at, hopefully. And I want you to think how Scripture speaks about Scripture. I just want to give you a couple of illustrations in Genesis chapter 41, and you know the backstory here, uh, Joseph has been imprisoned. He's known as an interpreter of dreams, remember? So just to fast forward in the story, Pharaoh's had a dream, and he's laid on these crazy expectations to his magicians to interpret the dreams, and none of them can do it. So he, he goes after Joseph. This is Genesis 41, beginning at verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Such an important phrase. I don't have any special ability to interpret a dream. I'm not like this mystical person that they can hear a dream. When my kids were younger, they would come to the breakfast table. I had the weirdest dream, Dad. I had the weirdest dream. And they would go on with these dreams. I got to the point where, you know, it takes longer to tell about the dream than the dream itself. I don't want to hear about your dream. So then I'd play with them. Let me interpret your dream. And I'd make up all this crazy stuff about their dreams. That's not what Joseph does. It's not in me. It's not in me. Now notice Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. Many years later, 
But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king that you might understand the thoughts of your mind. The Old Testament believer understood that prophecy and interpretation of dreams came from God, not from somebody saying, I think this is probably what it means. Let me take a good guess. Or maybe this person has more insight. So many verses in the Old Testament are completely ripped out of context. The sons of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do, like they were these wisdom prophetic people. The phrase understood the times meant they knew the law of God. They knew that Israel wasn't following the word of God. That's what it means to understand the times. All that for free. Scripture is not made of man. Prophecy is not man-made. And because we come from different backgrounds, we use different language. Language is important. I'm not mad or upset when someone tells me God told me. I'm cautious. I'm not upset or mad when someone says God's leading me, but I'm cautious. I'm not upset or mad when someone says God wants me to marry this woman or this man, but I'm cautious. Because Daniel and Joseph weren't willing to say that. Not a man. Doesn't mean we don't use wise counsel. Doesn't mean we don't ask people. Compatibility, pray through things. I'm not dismissing all that. I'm just trying to encourage you to be cautious with that language. Prophecy and interpretation from God and his spirit and the people he chose. Lil writes, the prophetic lamp was not fashioned nor lighted by the prophet. Old language, but good. Not fashioned or lighted by the prophet himself. It was divine, its divine origin offer a distinct and powerful motive for taking heed to the prophetic word, and one well fitted to produce a patient and reverent and docile spirit of investigation. When you and I read the scripture, we're to be careful, we're to be contemplative, we're to study the context, we're to see how theology works together across different books of the Bible and different authors, and that keeps us on the straight and narrow. On the other hand, think of false prophets. And this one from Jeremiah's time in Jeremiah 23, 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. Time out. The prophet just said, don't listen to prophets. This is something, again, most churches overlook. No matter where you are on the continuum of gifts and what they mean, a prophet can speak of his own and not of God. That's what Paul's whole corrective letter of Corinth was, the misapplication of gifts. It wasn't how to do them right. It was, this is how you're doing them wrong. Jeremiah calls out, God calls out Jeremiah to say, they are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. I'm always a little chilled when I hear any prominent Christian say, God told me, and then they start explaining something that's not clearly moored to this book. Just be wise. Just be careful. Not trying to hurt anybody's feelings or throw people under a bus. Verse 21, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So this is the, this is the 
the money shot, the money sentence, if you will. What does it mean men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God? It's a lovely, profound, rich theology. Uh, men moved in the net ESV, I think NIV, say carried along. Men were carried along. It's a very common maritime term. In the first century, it was used of the wind that moved a boat across the water. It's a beautiful image. A boat uh, with the sail and a rudder sitting on a still sea sits. Unless you want to paddle. They didn't have motors. Until a wind comes along and fills the sail, it's dead in the water, literally and metaphorically. So the same word that would be a common word for the first century is the word God used Peter to write, men that are moved along by, what a great picture. Uh, Peter's minding his own business, Jeremiah, Isaiah, pick Moses, they're minding, and they're all reluctant, remember? Very few of them are here, am I go me, until after Isaiah's experience. Most of them go left instead of right. They don't want to do these things. They're moved by God's Spirit. Acts 27 gives you the literal use of this word. Acts 27, 15. The ship was caught in it and could not face the wind. We gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. That's the same word, be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After we had hoisted it up, Luke writes, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship and fearing that it might run aground in the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. Same word. This boat jettisoned that which controlled the boat. It's a powerful passage. It was a phrase where Luke says, we threw the tackle over with our own hands. We threw the control of the boat overboard so we could lighten the load because we were going to drown. And the last thing we did, we just threw the anchor out and prayed for daylight. And two times Luke uses the word driven along, driven along. They had no control with the force of that wind and storm. Peter uses the same word when he says, men who were moved by, carried along. God chose these prophets. He chose these apostles. He moved them. How? I have no idea. It's speculation. But the language is very precise. They were moved by God's Spirit to pen what you and I read. Not man-made. A prophet didn't come up with this idea. God moves them. This is divine inspiration. But the prophets, while recipients of the Spirit's moving power, were not like inanimate ships, one commentator writes. The prophets raised their sail, so to speak. They were obedient and receptive. And the Holy Spirit filled them and carried the craft in the right direction which he wished. Diem and Hebert. They continued, they remained conscious and in control of their rational powers, but they were not in any way the manipulator of divine power. There's all kinds of view of inerrancy and in that we sat down and God dictated and told them what to write. John R. Rice believed that. God, we were just we were just stenographers. We wrote down what God said. But if you read language of any kind, English, there's style, there's word choice, there's vocabulary, there's perspectives. We have three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the outlier John that all tell the same storyline in very different terms. 
and yet they work on off similar sources. We have Peter who writes in a different vocabulary than the Apostle Paul. Luke was a medical doctor. Luke more, wrote, wrote more in the New Testament than any author. Acts and the book of Luke. And his language reflects his education and his, his brain. So we see the what I like to call the big A author, God, and the little A author, Peter. The big A author, God, the little A author, Moses. Make sense? Can't understand it, but that's what Scripture is teaching us here. We have both human and divine authorship. If it's God's Word, it's reliable. If it's God's Word, it's practical. If it's God's Word, did it indeed come from Him? If this is a man-made book, then treat it that way. Treat it like a Grisham novel. Read it and put it on a shelf and then give it away to some place that's going to sell it for a dollar. It's just a book. But if it's the living Word of God, it's an entirely another matter. Four quick lessons, and um, see if we can put some of this into shoe leather, is repetition and restatement. Number one, God's Word is reliable. It's reliable. The book you have in your hand is trustworthy. Don't let the world and confused Christians tell you otherwise. Secondly, we will not understand God's Word perfectly on this planet. You and I will have to cross over the threshold from this life to eternal life, and then we're just going to go, wow, it was so simple. It was so simple. Why didn't I understand this before? Because in our human failings and sin nature, we have all kinds of challenges understanding God's Word. Our sin nature, our stubbornness, our upbringing. Third, when men and women disagree about Scriptures and its interpretation, let me just say this. Number one, it can be pride and it can be sin. Number two, uh, I hold to a theory that there's one interpretation and many applications. I'm not going to die on a sword for that, but it helps me. There's one meaning of the text, but there's many ways it can be applied. And that's why I'm a stickler for in context. What does this mean in the context and the time and the audience who read it, who heard it, the first ones? What was going on when Pilate was the prefect of Tiberias? And why is it important they found this stone there? Because that told them Pilate was a real person, which liberal scholars for decades disputed Pilate ever existed. Hard to disprove it when it's in his hometown. And basically it was his sign over his door, we might say. Is, is it a tribute to him? On the other hand, we have people that are going to see all kinds of fanciful things in verses. They're going to. I had a friend that uh, was, was uh, in labor, and she uh, was. They went and induced labor, and they were going to put her on a drug called pitocin, which is commonly called pit. Well, she had read a psalm that morning that three times said, "Don't go down into the pit. Don't go down into the pit. Don't go down into the pit." And she said, no, God told me I can't use Pitocin. I'm not trying to make fun of her. I'm just saying that's the continuum. We don't want to be functional deists, but nor do we want to see Pit and Pitocin under every leaf. There's got to be some common sense to this. One interpretation. What did it mean in the context? I don't think David was talking about being induced with Pitocin when he wrote that article, wrote that psalm. Four, most of the time we, when we see or read a new interpretation, be careful. When you see or read a new interpretation, be careful. Um, not saying we can't learn. I love to learn. I love to see new insights. 
Now, we haven't solidified this yet, but we're working on a little booklet, and uh, it'll be part of what it means to belong to Stonebridge Bible Church. And the preamble is as follows, and we're going to show you this uh, image in a couple of slides. The teaching and foundation of Stonebridge Bible Church is based on the Scripture. This statement of faith, the document that will we'll follow, reflects the doctrines that are essential to understand, teach, and practice God's Word. The approach, we approach the Bible, excuse me, we approach the interpretation of the Bible, and we use the word hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the way in which you study something. There's a hermeneutical process, and this is what we explain in these terms that come. A normal, grammatical, literal historical, theological lens. So briefly, normal. Understanding the words of the Bible and their common usage unless otherwise indicated by context. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the world that he might see whose heart is wholly yielded to him. Are two eyeballs circling the globe like satellites? It's a very simple metaphor. God's looking. So we understand Language and context and how things are used. Grammatical, using the recognized rules of grammar and interpretation, which is why from time to time I'll say, hey, I don't want to be a grammar cop or bore you, but it's helpful to know a little bit of grammar. Third, literal. Understand the meaning of the Bible in the ordinary sense unless the context requires a figurative interpretation. There was a man who had a field. There was a man who hired workers. When Jesus uses parables, we know he's telling a story. He's telling a story they would all understand to make a spiritual point. And typically it's one of those robodopes. He gets them pulled in, then boom, he hits them going, this is what you're doing right or wrong. You're missing the whole point. It's as easy as a story that you would know in the day. Theological, a consistent consideration of the whole of the Bible. So that's the framework. That's where we're going. That's what we'll be established on. Because for me and my house, at the end of the day, it's not what Michael thinks or Wayne thinks or Jason or anybody else who stands up here and leads or, or talks. It's not what we think. It's what did God say. I'm sorry to have to be that pedantic. This is a football. This is God's word. He didn't stutter. He didn't error when he gave it to us. It's our only index of authority in life. Wisdom is wonderful, but it's not the same guarantee. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Mm-hmm.